In our tradition, every fourth Sunday of Easter is what we call Good Shepherd Sunday. And so we turn our attention to one of three passages from uh, John chapter 10, which is a vivid metaphor that Jesus pulls straight from Israel's larger story. We got that in Ezekiel 34. It's the shepherding metaphor is throughout the Old Testament. Why is it so important that we hit this every year? It's because it has so much to say about God and about us and about our relationship to God and the way we live in the world. It illustrates at least four crucial aspects of the gospel. First, we get the character of Jesus as the wise, loving, and also sacrificial leader that he is. He's a leader who not only helps, but who saves. Second, we get the unvarnished truth of innate human vulnerability, despite that we tend to, to have this perpetual sense of our blind confidence and our control. Thirdly, we get the intersection of those two realities, the simultaneous uh, the, the simultaneously promising and also threatening environment in which humanity lives, vulnerable, and because of which we, like sheep, need a good shepherd like Jesus. You might call this the reality check, especially for leaders, for leadership. And fourthly, we get the surprising scope of this salvation and guidance that ends up going beyond the limited scope of the Pharisees and the ethnic of ethnic faithful Israel out to a people beyond borders who know the voice of the Good Shepherd because he calls and they follow. So we'll explore these four themes a little bit this morning. But first, let me offer some quick, I think, an important textual background here. Just before this account in John 9, Jesus makes a paste with mud and saliva, which is kind of gross, right, kids? He, takes, he spits in the dirt, he makes mud, and he ends up putting it on a man's eyes. Would you want that to be you? Well, what if, what if, right, well, what if you're blind, though, and what if Jesus is healing you? That's what he's doing right there. This man has been blind all of his life, and Jesus tells the man to go wash it off in a pool, and then when he does that, his sight is miraculously restored. His neighbors are blown away, and they usher him to the temple so that the religious leaders can see him. But here's the problem. They don't see him. They don't see the miracle. Instead of celebrating, they start interrogating. Some of the more legalistic types, uh, they're just ticked off because Jesus has made mud. He's broken the soil, right? He has broken their trumped-up Sabbath laws. Others among them are trying to do some sound theology. They're trying to make sense of it. They're scratching their heads. They're wondering, how is it that Jesus, if he's a sinner, that he can heal people? How is that? They can't make sense of the miracle, and they're trying to. So what do they do? They resort to just assuming the whole thing's a sham. The man hadn't been blind after all, despite the testimony of his parents and his own insistence. And what they end up doing is just kicking him out. They just end up disregarding him. They use their power, their self-importance, their self-preservation, right? Their self-protective, self-advancing leadership to squeeze this situation into their limited lens and to squeeze this loving miracle out of it. We find out Jesus is multitasking here. He's good at that. He's healing and he's revealing. What's really going on beyond and beneath this incredible act of compassion, this confrontation between divine wholeness and physical brokenness is an exposure of another kind of brokenness and vulnerability. What is that? Leadership. Is broken. 
The irony is thicker right here in this moment than the heavy walls of the temple surrounding them. The Pharisees, leaders though they are, are actually the blind ones. So Jesus leaves them with this little nugget in chapter 9. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who can see, or at least think they can, may become blind. This is what divine judgment is. This thing that Jesus is doing simultaneously by healing and revealing. This is pulling back the curtain. It's a revelation of what's hidden. True judgment is not a decision or an opinion. It's a real picture of what's really going on. And we try to judge such that what we see and decide upon comports with that reality of what really, really is. And God does this perfectly. Jesus does it perfectly. So this sets up the shepherding metaphor. And it's echoing all kinds of Old Testament, including our Ezekiel 34 reading today, Isaiah 53, and Numbers 27, where Moses himself is praying that he's praying for, the, for the, someone who shall lead the people out and bring them in, out and in, as in Jesus' language, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Those are Moses' words. And that particular someone Moses is praying for would be Joshua. So what you get right here, Jesus is invoking Moses, isn't he? Which, to be honest, adds further insult to the Pharisees. Why? Because Moses is their guy. Moses is the shepherd of Israel, not Jesus. And the law of Moses is their jam. And this stings. And not a little bit, because, and, and in this moment, they're somewhat confused and they're conflicted. They're trying to unpack it all, but the gist becomes really, really clear. Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd. God in the flesh is the shepherd. The Lord has always been the shepherd. And they're the hired hands. And they're proving it. Now here's the temptation at this point for us. We like to do this 21st century, late moderns. We can settle into that all too comfortable place of seeing Jesus as one whose favorite thing to do is to dismantle all the religious types. We love when Jesus does that. But we need to step back and ask why he would bother doing that in the first place. Why is this so important? Why does this get Jesus so fired up? Because bad religion from bad leaders, and let's call this the in internal threat to God's people, it keeps us vulnerable to the external threat of a world under the sway of evil. Does that make sense? If we don't have good leaders on the inside, then we're in trouble on the outside. It keeps us vulnerable to also to our own limited capacity to find our way forward in the truth in a world full of wolves and thieves, as Jesus says, of lies and of losses. The Pharisees aren't the wolves and thieves that Jesus has in mind, at least in this picture. No, they're the ones failing to protect and prepare the vulnerable sheep. Not that they can't be wolfish or thievish, but they're not doing their job. And Jesus is there standing in stark contrast to them. He is this embodied judgment. He's caring for the sheep and will care for the sheep in a way they have not. So what about actual sheep makes them vulnerable? Well, kids, let's talk about it. Think about this with me. Maybe you don't know this. Some people think sheep can't see very well. And the truth is they actually can. And some people think sheep are super dumb, but they're not. They're actually really, really smart. But there is a problem. There are a couple of problems. Here are two of the problems with sheep. They can see well, but the problem is their eyes are right here and not here. 
And they also had these horizontal pupils where we have round ones that help us take in things out here. Theirs just help them kind of take out like, like here. So if kids, if you know what peripheral vision is, like if you hold your hand out here and your hand just kind of, you can see it a little bit, but it's kind of blobby, right? Sheep see blobby right here. They can see clearly out here. They can't see very well right in front of them. And what, what's the problem there? That's where they're going. Here's the second problem. The second problem is they don't really have any instinctive defense against enemies, against predators. They can just run. They're kind of nimble, but think about if your only defense is to run and you're trying to run away, but you can't see where you're going, you've got a problem, right? You've got a problem. You're truly vulnerable. You guys can see how this ties in, right? You might have seen that video that's been going around this week. Anybody seen the video of the sheep? Uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe, I think it is. He gets rescued. This kid pulls him out by the leg from a narrow roadside trench. I think, yeah, again, it's somewhere in Eastern Europe. And then the, the sheep gets out and is thrilled and takes off and bounds up gracefully into the air running like a gazelle and about 20 yards down goes headfirst right back into the ditch. <laughs> it's not because he's dumb. It's because he can't see the ditch. He can't see it. So the best environment for a sheep, if we think about this, is a flock moving in and out under the sound of the shepherd's voice. A sheep does what it's supposed to do when it's led. The best possible scenario is, scenario is for the in, intrinsically and extrinsically vulnerable to do what? To have loving protection and guidance from leadership who can see, from leadership who are willing to face every threat on their behalf. This is what Jesus said he would do. This is what he has done, and this is what he is continuing to do. This is the character of our shepherd that comes into view here. When he calls us, this is what he is calling us to as his sheep, a life of trust, guidance, attentiveness, humility, knowing that his voice is worthy of our obedience because it's for our good. Without leaders who are wise and loving, who know the voice and the heart of God, we are that much more vulnerable to the dehumanizing and destructive forces at work in our world. The wolves and thieves and the ditches that are right in front of our eyes. We don't see them. We might imagine that we've got all sorts of defenses, but I think it's probably more like the comfort of living and moving in a flock in some ways, a humanistic sort of flock. That's what we do. If we all agree, you know, well, there's no real spiritual threat because there's no real spiritual realm and there's no objective morality and no extrinsic threat except, ironically, moral and political en enemies that we either rehabilitate or cancel then we can just bumble along confidently wherever the rest of the sheep are going, where history and culture are going. And this is akin to having no shepherd at all, or just a hired hand who's in it for the benefits, but has no interest in the costs, can't really see, isn't really trying. And hired hands, if you think about it, they aren't just indiv individuals necessarily. They are the systems codified by sin and corruption of which the scriptures warn us what Paul calls principalities and powers that exert control this kind of leadership is ideological like the Pharisees you don't have to be religious to be a Pharisee by the way they're blind to everything but their own agenda 
their own way. And on the face of it, they want our attention, they want our allegiance, they want our money. But behind the levers where sin and evil is entrenched, they want more. Think about what John tells us in 1 John today, what's really going on. They want us lost and undone under the sway of the evil one. But the gospel tells us we have a good shepherd. And because of him, we can have better shepherds, you and me. From Jesus, we get a promise of what he will be, the good, the perfect shepherd. But we also get a pattern. We get an example from Jesus. Leaders who consistently and humbly acknowledge even our own vulnerability as sheep and our own desperate need of direction and accountability, we know the language of flourishing, of goodness, and of the gospel, and we live like it. And so we follow the pattern of Jesus we see throughout the gospels. What happens if we don't? We find our own selves blind, lost, and reduced to what I think the church is guilty of as a selective memory of the message. We work it our way. Like Jesus, better shepherds are caring and nurturing. But also like Jesus, they call us to active responsibility and accountability and faithful work to a standard, to a purpose. Because after all, we are far more than sheep, right? We are sons and daughters of God. Jesus' support of us and his challenge to us, they function together to develop real maturity in us. They call us not only to affirmation, but also to agency. They affirm our being, but they also prepare us in our doing. Now, we've given you an Anglican PowerPoint slide, which means it's on the paper right here. So at the, after the dismissal, I want to point you to this, the, uh, um, some language that we've been using in, our, in recent leadership training at Village. Uh, we're receiving this as a staff. It's part of what's called the five voices model. So you have this small diagram at the end of your service, and um, have a look at that. And what you're going to see there, if you know what that is, is an XY axis, axis that's measuring two necessary aspects of healthy leadership, high support and high challenge, or on the other end, low support, low challenge. In the top left corner, you see protect. You see the outcome of leaders who provide lots of support but little challenge. Leaders who treat people like mere victims, but unwittingly prepare them for lives of self-focus and entitlement. This is leadership that wants to be liked. But it isn't actually very loving or trustworthy. So does that make sense? Low support, or uh, um, high support, low challenge is just protection only. In the bottom right, you get lots of challenge, but little or no support. This leads to dominating. This is a culture of coercion and control, not unlike that of the Pharisees. These are leaders who treat people impersonally, focused only on outcomes, not inputs. And that has happened in the church plenty. Dominate. In the bottom left corner, you see abdicate. And you have the result of both low support and low challenge. Leaders who are essentially absent abdicating their responsibility. These are leaders who've checked out because things are too hard, things aren't going their way, or they're too distracted by other things. But here's where the magic happens. The top right corner. 
where support and challenge are both moving upward and a leader is empowering people, not coddling, not coercing, but caring, liberating people, liberating people to walk in freedom under the voice of the shepherd. Think about the fact that Jesus often healed people and then said, stop sinning. Now, what do we do with that? Oh, well, Jesus, you're not being kind and loving. Is he not? He knew they weren't merely their sickness or their injury or their need. He knew they were made for holiness and for purpose in the world. The woman at the well wasn't merely a sinner in need of grace, though she was that. She wasn't only that. She was an evangelist waiting to be unleashed, empowered. Look in the Gospels how Jesus leads his disciples, how he leads Peter. It's tough love, y'all. Watch how Paul crafts his letters. It is high support. It is high challenge applied to a whole community that's getting healthy as people, moving together under the sound of the gospel, the whole gospel, the voice of Jesus. So Jesus stands right here in this picture as one in stark contrast to the Pharisees, the one who was willing to and who did lay down his life for those the Father loves, those he loves, those he would call to take up a cross. Jesus himself took on a humanly role of submission to the Father who knows him and whom he knows in verse 15. He has authority. Jesus has the power, but it is in harmony with his Father. It is subject to what the Father is saying and doing, subject to a charge that he has received from the Father in verse 18. Everything he's going to do in that authority, laying down his life, Taking it up again, he says, is an outworking of the Father's loving charge to him. This is why, after his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus grounds his disciples, the apostles that he will send, in what they have heard from him, the voice of the shepherd. They are to teach others to follow everything he has taught them, lest they leap headlong into something they can't see in front of them. Jesus commissions them to sound like him, to lead like him, in tune, humbly, lovingly, with equal parts challenge and support to liberate and to empower the flock to live in the world as it really is. So in closing, let, let, let's just let's talk about how the rubber meets the road in this and, and related to our desire as a church. I talked about this a little bit in a town hall, but how do we sort of cash this out? Where does the rubber meet the road and offer this, um, this call of leadership in the church? Well, let me just say this. If you as a follower of Christ leave this church thinking more about your deficiency and your sin than Christ's sufficiency and Christ's grace and Christ's help, then we've failed you by not making the gospel clear. If you leave this fellowship uninspired to trust a faithful, liberating shepherd more and to order your life around his voice, if you're uninspired to do that, then we've failed you. If you leave this fellowship more concerned with what God wants from you than what he wants for you, then the gospel didn't get through somehow. If you leave here without a real sense that you belong to a family and to a legacy and a history and a promise much broader and deeper and wiser than the distilled spiritualism and the half-cocked promises of this present age, then, we, then either we failed you or you fell asleep. 
If all the potential mistreatment, poor guidance, abuse, and empty affirmation you've experienced from church leadership isn't being addressed and healed by the way we're prayerfully trying to follow Jesus and shepherd this flock, then challenge us. Call us. Email us. Bang my door down. And if you go home and you feel powerless to confront the threats you feel from the bad news in your life, whether in your news feed or outside of that, then we've got to do more to empower you as one filled with the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. We know what the call is. We know what the voice sounds like. We know the example that we've been set. And that's what we want to live. We need to embody it as Jesus did. We need to stand in stark contrast as he continues to give us the strength and power and wisdom to do that. The possibility for the church to move forward in faith means trusting the vision and the voice of the good shepherd whose call goes beyond the boundaries that we're always setting and the Pharisees were setting, right? Gathering those we might not see or expect. I want to steward a community where anybody can come in and hear the gospel and know they belong. Where we focus on the center who is Christ, not on the boundaries that we so often set. We can settle for nothing less in every challenge that we face as a community than to hear the voice of Jesus. We want to be truly better, always better. And that's only possible because the one who is truly good, always good. Amen? Amen. Lord, help us. Give us your strength. We'll trust in you, Lord. We know you are leading us in and out. And you want nothing but good for us. You gave your life for us and help us to be focused on that. Make that the center of our understanding as we continue to care for one another and for this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.